We're going to continue with this, this sermon series, Holy Principles, Holy Land, or where I was even thinking last night, maybe just like forgotten principles of the faith. Yeah, you know, whatever. Whatever works. What I mean by it is, is like there are things in our faith that are solid and true, but there are things that we have seemingly forgotten. Example, last week was uh, the reality of what you see is not more real than what is true. As a basic principle uh, that some of my brothers have taught me on, um, that seems to have been forgotten. And so this week is this one. The identity of a man is not what he is, but who he is. Okay? This is a, the second foundational principle. It's all about understanding your identity. This is a very personal thing for me. Because when I, I'm not kidding you, I'm 38, I think. Yeah, I'm 38. Yeah, I'm 38. Uh, I, it, I'm serious. It's, it was about maybe 30, 32 years of my life. Where, and most of that of being a believer, which I actually did not have my identity completely right. Like I knew what to do and I knew what you were supposed to do. And I knew what I was, but I didn't really know who I was. And I'm telling you, it's, it's so revelatory. Most of us, when we get saved, the first thing is, you say a prayer, now read John, and now do this and do that. It's like, man, I wish someone would have said, before you do anything, let's just talk about not what you do, but who you are now as a child, a son, a daughter. And now, everything else you do is going to be done through that lens and through that perspective, and there's the sermon, right? Seriously, there, there's the sermon, there's the devotional, and now we can like use all like different biblical things to prove that, but that's it. Like We need to get out of a place of just doing things and getting our identity from things, but start to get our identity on who we act, from who we are. And so here is one of the many stories of, the, of scriptures that talk about such a concept, and it's the story of the prodigal son. And I want to read through it because I think we're going to take a little bit of a different approach than what you've usually taken with this. Uh, Luke 15, verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with a prodigal living. And when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into, the, into his fields to feed swine. Very interesting, unclean animal. This is no mistake here. And when he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one ate, gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put on a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him, safe and sound, your father has killed a fatted calf. Calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might marry with my friends. But as soon as his sons of yours came... Who has devoured your livelihood with harlots? You killed the fatted calf for him. 
And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. I was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Very, I mean, like, like, I mean, if you've been in church for like a month, you you know some of some of the story. The story of the prodigal son. A man, a father, really. Two sons. Two very different sons. Uh, One is a prodigal son. Uh, He is the one that is usually focused on and talked about and Many of us or all of us are prodigal sons because we've returned to the father, right? But there's also the quote-unquote good son. And he's got a story in this too. And it's so typical because it's the thing that he's dealing with. Like no one ever talks about the good son, right? Of this story? Like never. It's always the prodigal son. Which is so amazing because that's what the good son is feeling. Like, dad, you forgot me. And now, like, 2,000 years later, no one talks about the good son in the story. Everyone talks about the prodigal son in the story. It's, like, so funny, but so powerful, and there's a lesson to be had in it. So today's message is this notion of the identity of a man is not what he is, but who he is. It's all about finding your identity. And so we take a look at some things, you know, and and this whole sermon series is coming out of uh, our one week in Israel. And how being there, seeing things, kind of Josh, myself, Connie, Tommy, and Tony, it's like, it's, it all just kind of like rewired us or reminded me about the concepts of, of God's promises on the Jewish people in the nation of Israel. And we see it in the scriptures and we also see it today. Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 12 says this. Actually, I'm sorry, Numbers 14. that's funny that's all about tithing all right numbers 14 14 12 oh my goodness that's not it, guys. Let's Google it. I'm like, kind of off today. Oh, four. Ah, oh, David. I stopped wearing the glasses. Well, that's what I'm going to blame it on, but I think it's actually my poor handwriting. 14.2 of Deuteronomy. I was right. Sorry. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. This is uh, dealing with some identity. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. It says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is very powerful. We have uh, the birth of Israel coming out of uh, Egypt. God says, You're my people. You're mine. You're chosen. You're different than everyone else, just like Alan was talking about. You're a chosen people for me. Goes on to say that, uh, you know, the reason why I've chosen you is not because you were the greatest of peoples, because you were the, actually the smallest of peoples. You were not mighty. You were not a big deal. So I'm choosing you, the least of the nations, so that my name could be glorified in you. That's a powerful identity. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. And hopefully this one is right. 7 through 8, it says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of the peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So, here we have the why. The why I'm choosing you is because you were the least and also because I am going to fulfill the oath that I gave your fathers. The reason why I'm bringing this all in is because this is a promise that was given to the nation of Israel so many years ago. And uh, you can ask some of the other team that went to Israel to see what they have to say about it. But when you interact with an Israeli today, 
uh, there is a certain level of confidence that is there. Like big time. Now the confidence can be somewhat abrasive sometimes. I'm not going to like romanticize their, their culture. They got, they got problems. They got issues. But I'm telling you, I've, I've never personally, I've traveled like a good portion of the world. Um, I've never seen a people that are so confident. Uh, actually, someone who's born in Israel, there's this kind of funny nickname for them. It's called a sabra. It's a, a cactus, a desert, ca- desert cactus or a prickly pear. And what it's supposed to mean here is that when you first meet, meet an Israeli, they're a little like prickly, a little standoffish, a little like stoic. But once you get past that prickly skin, sweet, give you the shirt off their back. Very nice, beautiful, warm people. But at first, the confidence is like, whoa, like who are these people? Yeah, where is this coming from? Where is it coming from? Guys, they know their identity. We're going all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. I have called you, you're my chosen people. And you're going to be strange and you're going to be peculiar. And the nations of the world are not going to like you. And they're like living it today like, oh, this is where it's coming from. Huh? But where does their identity come from? Uh, it comes from a couple of things. A land, a people, and a purpose. So, once again, because uh, we're relating some of these things to the trip to Israel, uh, the land itself, right, they're living in Israel, a, a promised land, which we talked about last week, which was given to them by their, to their fathers, by God. They have a people. When I mean a people, I mean an actual ethnicity. I mean an actual DNA strand. Like, you can get your blood work done, send it to ancestors.com or whomever, and they'll come back and say if you are this person, that person, that person. There's an actual DNA strand known as either European Jewry or Spanish Jewry, essentially, North Africa, right? They got it. It's, it is a marker in the genetic code. And they're all around each other in the same nation. And then, of course, there's a purpose. And the purpose is, in part, to rebuild the nation of Israel and to secure a place of protection from persecution. That's an amazing, amazing thing. A land, a people, and a purpose. And so there's a confidence of knowing who you are and who's around you is like you. There is a power. Dare I say there is an electricity in the air. Okay? And so, fine. You know, I'm using this. You're like, all right, why, why, am I, why am I bringing this up? Because I really do believe that Christianity largely has an identity problem. It's bizarre, but there's also beautiful elements to it that need to be corrected. For example, we don't have a land. Like we have America, but it's not like the Christian land. Right? I mean, the nations of the earth are going to surround Israel. The nations. That includes the United States of America, right? right? The nations of the earth at the end of time. Not like the nations except for the United States. The nations. He's coming back to Israel. Like, we don't have a land that's ours, you know, as a Christian sense, right? We're spread out on the four corners of the earth, which is actually a very beautiful thing, if you think about it. Like, our faith transcends national boundaries. That is powerful. Very powerful. A people, if you just take a look at the crowd here, we're, and look at the broad brush of Christianity, right? We're multi Pretty much like multilingual, multi-ethnicities, multicultural. Once again, it is such a beautiful thing. The power of the gospel goes past all of those things. But there is this possibility that that may pull us into trying to understand, well, what is our identity? Because I don't have a country. I don't necessarily have a language or a real specific culture because... The gospel is so much bigger than that. <clears throat> and that's the power of it. <clears throat> what about the purpose? <clears throat> well, our purpose is to spread the kingdom of God. Is it? Or is it to spread our own church? Our own ministry? Guys, there is a deep potential for an identity crisis in the church. Why is there so much division amongst us? Because everyone's trying to figure out their own identity and bring other people into their identity instead of us bringing, uh, bringing all of us into Christ's identity. 
But there's a lesson to be learned here. Land, a people, a purpose fosters this place of identity. And so what's the problem with all of this? We're trying to bring it back to today. Is identity of man is not what he is, but who he is. If Christians, if believers, do not get their identity and figure out who they really are, since we don't have a DNA genetic code, we have a spiritual gen, uh, code, we don't have necessarily a real Christian culture. I mean, we do, but it's different. There can be problems that happen. For example, if you know only what you are or what you do, right? Hi, my name is David. Oh, what do you do for a living? I am a teacher. Oh, great. Hi, what's your name? My name is Sam. Oh, what do you do? Like, like this is the second question everyone asks one another. And if we only determine and understand ourselves by what we do, then we will really just be concerned in life with the actions that will allow us to meet our objectives and our goals. If I just do this, I will be able to get this. If I just lose a little weight, then my identity will be a more attractive person, quote-unquote. If I just pray a little more, then I'll look to be a little more holier, right? It's all action-based. But if we first know who we are, then our actions will be tempered by who we are. I'm going to say this again. It's very powerful. If we first know who we are in Him, then all of our actions, everything that we do in life, will be tempered by the realization of what our and who our identity is. This is very, very important and very, very powerful. And we're not the only ones who have had this understanding. There's a, there's, there's a, throughout the ages, there's a warrior code. The great soldiers in history all have adopted codes to live by. To define who they are. Because they know that if you do not know who you are, and you carry out actions as a soldier or a warrior, like some pretty devastating results could happen. Like, can you imagine, like, the United States Marine Corps or the Navy SEALs doing whatever they could to win a war without understanding who they are? Like, we're Americans. We don't do that. Just think about, like, what would happen if there wasn't something that tempered you. Like, we have nuclear weapons. We could, at the end of World War II and still today, like, light up the whole world and be like, yeah, you guys are our slaves now. We have like 10,000 nuclear warheads. We could do that. But we know who we... We're Americans. We don't do that. Now, if the Nazis had 10,000 warheads, they would do that. But we don't do that because we know who we are. We don't do that. Like you were saying. We, we, I'm a believer. I don't, we don't do that. For example... All these societies had this uh, top left, we had this, the, uh, the samurai, they had the bushido, the way of the warrior. On the right, you have, uh, top right, you have the Spartans. They have what's called agoge, their like code to live by. Of course, the Navy SEALs who have the Navy SEAL ethos. If you take a look at all these throughout thousands of years, it really comes down to this. All of them are all about showing honor, respect, courage, take a stand, be different. You're, you, you're higher and better and more mature than all the other soldiers or all the other people. We're holding you to a standard because you're a seal. We're holding you to a standard because you're a samurai. We hold you to a standard because you are not just any soldier. You're a soldier of Sparta. And once you know who you are, now you wear it. You're like, that's right. I'm not like the rest. This is my code. Everyone else can do what they do, but I don't do that because I'm not that. I am this. Once you identify who you are, you know that you do not do other things. And it's going to become a lot easier. It's become a lot easier in your life. And so here it is. To live out a code, you first need an identity. 
To live out a code to live by, you first need an identity. And I think we've lost this in the church. For example, what are the appropriate codes to live by as a believer? Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. okay. Like, can you come up with five? Can you come up with ten codes? Now, no matter what happens, it doesn't matter what happens, these five or ten things I do not waver on. I cannot waver on. Well, the Ten Commandments, don't talk to me about the Ten Commandments. We waver on them all the time. You lie when you do your taxes, probably. You do not observe the Sabbath day, the Fourth Commandment, right? We make engraven images all the time of everything that's above the earth and under the earth, above the sea and below the sea, which do not do. Well, there's grace not to do it. Okay, fine, there's grace not to do it, but grace needs a code. Which things in your life are we just like, we unwaver, we just do not do that? Which principles do we need? I'm like, I'm really feeling like a future sermon series. Like, what are the codes that believers must live by and be unwavering? Unwavering. If you got any ideas, Facebook us or something or email me. Because I really do want to know, like, can we compile something? Because every warrior class has done it. Every warrior class has done it. You show respect. You do not waver. You take the more difficult path. All that kind of stuff. Discipline. Yeah, well, like, without being like completely legalistic, right? But here's the thing. I'm not really wanting to talk about the codes because to talk about codes is, is fruitless. Because before a code, there needs to be an identity. And too many of us told, were told codes to live by when we got saved, but no one told you about your identity. So before a code, you need to know your identity. That's because the Navy SEAL is like, I'm a Navy SEAL. And now I have a code to live by. I'm a samurai. Now I have a code to live by. And so what the heck is your identity? It's this. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. If we do not know that our identity, our sons, actual sons and daughters, of the God of heaven and the God of the universe. How on earth shall we live out a code? You won't be able to. You will not be able to, man. But here's the problem in the church. So many of us in the church have put the code before the identity. I'm going to say this again. So many of us in church have put the code, the way to live, the things to do and don't do. I can't do this. I can't do that. Oh, what can I do? You put all of that before your identity. Forget about all the things you can do and can't do. Go smoke some cigarettes and go drink some beer. Maybe we can edit this out. <laughs> I'd rather you do that and think and ponder who you are in Christ than not smoke and not drink beer and never think about your identity. I hope everyone that's listening understands what I'm saying. I'm not advocating for craziness, but what I am advocating is put the identity before the action. You'll hide behind the actions and have no identity. And the American church is like filled with people like that. That's why there's no power that's why there's no revelation. That's why there's no revival. Because we've got a bunch of people walking around doing things without knowing who they are. You're a son. Titled Heavenly Blessing. So, so many of us in the church have put the code before the identity. The things that we have to do before the identity. If you do that, I'm telling you because I've been there for like 30 years. This is what's going to happen to you. It's going to leave you tired, exhausted, feeling beaten up, and not filled with the spirit of life. That's what's going to happen. You play your Christian game, you're going to be exhausted inside. 
You'll be drained, burned out. So what's the problem? The problem is this. What do I do before who I am? That's the problem. And I hope I don't lose too many of you here, but you know, we have all different levels here. But famously, uh, Rene Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. Like one of the most powerful statements in philosophical thought. In order to exist, to be a human being, you need to think. To have a thought. I was pondering this with this revelation. I was like, no, man, it's not I think, therefore I am. It is I am loved, therefore I am. Amen. Amen. If you know that you are loved and that you are a son and daughter of Messiah, you're able to exist now. If you tap into the revelation, behold, what manner the love of the Father has bestowed upon us that we can be called. Like, behold, it's like heaven shakes. Angels are attentive. God has spoken. These things are his children. And then I'm loved. If I'm loved, then I really can be in the right existence. And if I don't know I'm loved, if I don't really, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. No, 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 no. Like, if you don't, ah, no. It's not going to work. The verb to be, I am, existence, is a revelation of who you are, not what you do. I am loved. I am a son. It's now going to change everything. Because you now have an identity. And you have an identity, you'll be able to walk out in your coats effortlessly, seemingly effortlessly. But you got to know your love. You got to know, you got to know, it's like you got to know your name. You got to know your family. You got to know your last name. Like, this is what we are. This is who we are. If we don't do this, here are the possible outcomes, right? How does the world do this when they don't know their identity? Real simple, right? They're going to define themselves by what they do. They're going to define themselves by external things. Oh, look, I'm going to define myself by a certain level of prestige, by money, by a job and a career. Oh, by my looks and how I look and how I don't look. It's all external junk. And then they'll never, they're never happy, right? Because to be happy, they just need to achieve more, and then they get more, and, but they're defining themselves with what they have, and then their friends get the same things that they have, so they have to set themselves apart off and be special, so they have to buy more things and do better things, or be better looking and get Botox and everything else to look even better than everyone else. That's how the world sees it. But how does a religious person sees it, particularly in the time of Jesus? It's, it's this notion of dogma and legalism, Right? I mean, the pastor just said, I'd rather you drink beer and think about being a son than not drinking beer and not knowing you're a son. Like, <gasps> how could he say that? Well, welcome to legalism. Dogma. He, the pastor can't say that or can say that. You gotta do this. You can't do this. Do this. Don't do this. All right. Thank you. You are now a Pharisee. Right? The Pharisees. It's like everything that like, Christians hate. All the Pharisees. Half the church in the, in the West. It's a bunch of Pharisees in some way. What is the Pharisaic spirit? I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough for the blood of Jesus. And if I just do X, then it'll be okay. Now, this type of thinking uh, can creep into the church. can creep into believers all the time, right? These are the people that try to attain positions. They try to be liked. They try to look and sound the part of being a... a, a a churchgoer, I guess. It leaks in all the time, hence the purpose of this message. Not what you do, not what you are, but rather who you are. It's a problem that is such a problem that people that are in it don't even know it's a problem. Because I was in it for 30 years and didn't know it was a problem. Until brothers in the Lord, particularly Alan and Josh, showed it to me. I was like, oh my gosh. It's been this long? It's the notion of an orphan spirit. Orphans don't know who their fathers are. 
The orphan does not know their identity. To know your identity, you have to be adopted in, right? And so what is this orphan spirit? It's someone who does not know that they are a son or daughter. So now they need to, they have to prove their acceptance to God, to other people, to their family. They're on this treadmill of just having to prove, having to prove, having to prove. They create a tally system. This is like for the regular church guard. You've got to be really careful with this. Well, you know, if I just wake up a little earlier tomorrow and I just pray a little more, things are going to be good with the Lord. For many of us, that sounds correct. It's not correct. It's not correct. There are people all over planet Earth that pray to God and have no relationship with them. Or they think they have a relationship, but they don't have the relationship of a son or daughter. You can have a relationship. Just have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, which type of relationship? Relationship with a son, a daughter? Or like someone that you just pray to, to get things and to try to earn your keep. So if I just pray more, if I just go to church more, if I just worship more, then it's, it's going to be good. And once that happens, man, then everything's going to be all right. I mean, this is like the Garden of Eden all over again. Same lie. Like, if you just eat of this apple, right, then you're going to be. It's all over again. If. Or my personal favorite, and it's because I had to deal with this. If I just try harder not to sin, I won't sin anymore. I know, but it sounds so right. Doesn't it? It sounds so right that you hear it from the pulpit. Brother, sister, if you just try not to sin, you won't sin. Well, I tried that one for a long time, and I kept going back to the same junk. <laughs> well, just try harder. Just pray a little harder. Well, I did that too. Just fast. I did that too. Go on holy pilgrimage. I did that for like three years. If you just try a little harder, you won't sin anymore. You won't do that. Oh, my goodness. That is the orphan spirit. If I just do this, then everything is going to be okay. No, it won't. And I'm telling you from personal experience, I'm telling you, raise your hand if you're someone who have walked through this identity principle. Raise your hand if you're like, I went through it, okay? These people know. You can try and try and try. And you're just like, what the heck? I keep sitting on the same thing. And I know it's wrong. This is it, man. I'm saving you 30 years of hassle. If your actions become the vehicle of your acceptance, then you become your own God. You can't defeat sin. You're not God. God, Jesus' blood, and the power of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that can get us away from sin. And if you're walking around like, I can do it. I'm a soldier of Christ. You, the eye is a little bigger than Christ. You can't do it. You can work as hard as you can. You can pray as much as you want. You can worship as much as you want. You're not going to get free. In fact, you're just going to be tired, exhausted. And finally, you just say, I give up. I'm in the mud. I'm in the dirt of sin. And it feels pretty good, so I'm just going to roll around in it. Because you've tried so hard for so long. I'm telling you, I was there. Alan was there because we've talked. You're tired, you can't do it, and you fall. Because it's you. No poop, Sherlock, right? Like, no kidding. You can't do it. But, no, you can't. But the pastor said, if I just this, but no, no, you can't do it. He can do it in you. 
And then instead of stressing about the sin you're dealing with, instead of stressing about all those things that you have to do, why don't you take some time on working on your identity and understanding and knowing that you're a son or a daughter? Once you get that, that's not for me. It's foreign to me now. It's not me. I'm telling you, if you get this, if you know and accept who you are, not a samurai, not a Navy SEAL, but a son, then the code to live by comes naturally. And so put it this way, essentially this, identity must and can only precede action. Identity must and can only precede action. You're struggling with things, Stop talking about the struggle so much. You're giving it more power over you than it actually has. And spend time going before your father or in connection with that, invite some brothers or sisters alongside of you who can speak into your life and say, brother, sister, I understand you're going through this. I go through it too or I went through it too. The thing that's going to deliver you is not your action and not you beating your chest a little harder. It's you surrendering and you're saying, I have to work on the revelation and talk to my father and say, Jesus, father, I want to know what it's like to be your son. No one taught it to me. I didn't have a dad who was around. I need to know what it is like to be a son. Because sons bear inheritance. They don't have to ask. They get, right? They receive what their father has. Can the worship team come on down, please? Or rather, maybe just Mario. <coughs> Mario. Puberty is a bugger, man. Yeah, right? Moment this stuff makes sense. Because it's, it's, I'm telling you, like, I'm like, oh, where was this message when I was 15? Yeah, right? Perfect place for it, identity class. It's all right. We don't, it's all good. With uh, Mario, if he's not here. Okay. Oh, okay. All right, so closing off this, we go back to Luke. And we go back to the story of the prodigal son, which was Luke 15. And so Luke 15, we, we have these two kids, one father. Obviously, the father there the one who has the inheritance, he's obviously a representative of Abba Father, right? You have the two sons, which are ob obviously representations of two different types of people. Luke 15, verse 21 says, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Right, that's, that's the prodigal son. He goes out, takes his inheritance, takes his giftings, takes his money, parties, spends it on harlots, does all this kind of stuff, and he's left with nothing. Why is he left with nothing? Because those things, either monetarily or more importantly, spiritually, will leave you lacking and empty. We know that. He's like, oh, crud. Now what do I do? Well, the only thing I know is to go back to my dad. I'm going to go back to my dad, but let me be honest with him. I'm not worthy of you. The father is like, you're my son. Get here. Not only are you my son, but we're going to rejoice that you're back. Right? And that's, that's probably many of us, and the reality here is this. It's 100% of us. All of us have been prodigal sons and daughters, right? When we came to faith. But then there's also this other guy. Verse 28. The good son. The good son, he was angry and would not go in when he heard his brother was there. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat, and I might make merry with my friends. But my brother has 
been all whacked out and did all these kind of things and you bring them right back. But I, I've been faithful, I've been good, and yet you haven't fatted up the cow for me. And even to this day, everyone teaches about the prodigal son, but no one teaches about the faithful son. Like I said, all of us are prodigal sons. But then we get saved and some of us still kind of go away and some of us stay around. I was one of those ones that stayed around. Like I got saved at six, baptized in the Holy Ghost at 15. I did things right. I've had one woman in my life and it happened on my wedding night. That's it. I've been faithful. I've been going to church. I've been doing this. I've gone to Israel. I came back. I sowed into ministries. I worked and tithed since a little kid. I observed the Sabbath. I've done all these things. And I just did it. And I did it. And I did it. And I did it. And I said, Lord, how come? How come? I don't have what this poor schlep over there has. He just turned to you last week. Why am I preaching in a church of 20 or 40 or not preaching at all? Why? But yet other people, they do all this. Why? 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 Any of you, a good son? Now, we're not really good. Like, you know what I mean? The good son, the one that's like always done the right thing. Anyone here? One of those people, it gets exhausting. You mean I could have partied up in college? I could have slept around? I could have drank? I could have done pot? I could have done all this stuff and then get on my knees and say, Jesus, I'm sorry and I would have been all right? Really? Really? Yes. Yes. And that's the power of this story. So many people focus on the prodigal son. But both sons, both the younger and the older, both the partier and the faithful one, both, both, both did not understand what it really meant to be a son. I could talk to all the sinners out there about being a prodigal son. Whatever you do and however you muck it up, the Lord is there with arms wide open receiving you. It is absolutely true. But what about for the rest of us churchgoers? It's this. It doesn't matter what you do and how good you are. And if you do everything right and you pray all day, it doesn't matter. You cannot deserve the acceptance of the power of the blood of Jesus. What does the Father in the Scripture say? Son, you did everything right, but it doesn't matter. You are simply my son. You can't buy my love. And it doesn't matter if you do everything right or you do everything wrong. Ah, you're still my son. You're still here. And so for the prodigals, it's like, yes! But for some of us that are not so prodigal, it's like confounding. But I did everything right. I feel like the Father is saying for, for the prodigals, come on, man. Arms wide open, the pure, spotless blood of Jesus. We sin because we know sin. And we know sin because we have our identity wrong. Get the identity and sin will be no more. Because sons know who they are and all those things become foreign to you. But for the quote-unquote good guys that really have tried hard and did things right, that's a very, very, very dangerous place to be. In fact, it might be, in some ways, even more dangerous than the prodigal one that is left. Because the prodigal knows how low low is, and they come arms wide open. But the one who hasn't had the low, you think you're something that you're not. You have become a god unto yourself. Look what I do, and look how good I am, and I do this all right. Man, you are a god. You are worshiping yourself. You have built an idol in your life. You don't know what it is to be a son. Amen? I want to do this strategically. Alan, I need you to come down. Jess, if it's possible for you to come down. 
The reason why I'm bringing them up is these are two people, both male and female, a little older and younger, who both have walked through, can't say the right word that I want to use because it's church, walked through some real stuff, some real stuff, stuff dealing with identity issues. I'm talking about physical, emotional, you, t you name it. These, these two have walked through it. I didn't see Alan walk through it, but I saw Jess walk through it. I saw her when she first showed up as a little orphan baby in some ways, dropping off at the, at the doorstep. And I saw her just emerge into a daughter of God. Come on. I am, I am not telling you, I'm not asking you, I am pleading with you. If this concept of identity is, is, is touching a chord inside of you, it's not like maybe I'll go down. You have to go down. You have to come down and you have to get prayer. I am telling you, these things are so subtle. I walked 30 years in a born-again, spirit-filled, glory-cloud, crazy, miracle congregation my whole life. And this was new revelation to me. Because it comes so subtly. Well, I'll just spend a little bit more time with quiet time with the Lord. There it is. Just. Just. Just do a little more to get what I need. Whoa, there it was. So subtle. Telling you, you have to come down. You have to get some folks to pray for you. Just get a revelation of how deep, how wide, it's the love of the Father for me, for you. It never gets old because there's always new levels to it. You have to understand what, it, what does it really mean to be a son and daughter of the Most High God. It means you bear a name. It means you bear an authority. It means you bearing a uniform of, 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 of who you are and how you are and what you are and how you act. And it comes so naturally because when you're an adult, you no longer act like a child because you are now an adult. Right? You're an adult. You don't act like a child. Children act like children because they're children. Adults act like adults because they're adults. Once a man or a young man finally knows that they're an adult, they start acting like an adult. In our society, that unfortunately usually happens once they have a kid. They're like, oh, I have to be an adult now. But once you know, now you start walking in it. There needs to be a revelation. A complete revelation to feel and to understand what it is to be a son or daughter of God. Behold. In the New Testament, there's only two times that I can see when hine or behold is, is stated. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When John is going to cleanse the feet of Jesus. And now, behold, attention, all heaven, all earth, all hell, everyone bear attention. What manner the love of the Father has for us that he's called us children. Sons and daughters. And just as my daughters come to my lap, and it doesn't matter what they said to me or what they did, when they come to my lap, I am there to put my arms around them, to kiss their cheeks, to squeeze them, to love them, to cuddle. Because that's what fathers do to their children. Put it this way. Uh-oh, I did something wrong again. God is going to be mad at me. Uh-oh, or I did something wrong again. I better call my dad. When I was a kid, I did something wrong. I you know, drove too fast, got a ticket, got in a car accident. Oh, crap, I got to call dad. He's going to yell at me or do something. When I was younger, it's like, boom, right? Or, oh, crud, I made a mistake and I drove too fast. 
and I jacked up the car, who do I call? Oh, call dad. Dad's going to take care of it. Or, oh my God, dad's going to kill me. What is your perception with your heavenly father? Oh, it's the parent that says, call me if you drink too much. Like, I won't be mad if you drink too much. Don't get in the car. Call me and I'm there to pick you up. Which my upbringing is like, what the heck? Why would you say that to your kid? I would just say, you drinking? I want to beat you over the head. And that's the way I, 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 I grew up. No, if you drink, I don't want you to drink. But if you do and you make that mistake, you need to call me so I can come and get you. Opposed to, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to, I'm sorry. Opposed to, I'm going to drink. And I'm going to sneak it. And I'm not going to let my parents know. And I'm going to hide it. And I'm going to get in a car anyway. And boom. That's, that, that's the mentality. You, you get what I'm saying? I'm not saying, oh, just tell your kids to drink. What I'm saying here is, how do you view your father? Someone who's there with a paddle in hand, boom. Or one that's there like, he's going to fix it. Orphans see the paddle. Sons see him fixing it. Orphans see the paddle. Sons see him fixing it with love. We got to break, break, break an orphan spirit. We got to break the paddle. We have to say it has no place here. That is not the way that this father operates. He's not here ready to punish you. He's here to fix you. In fact, he gave his son to fix you. We need to grab that identity. So I, why don't we just stand? We're going to close out today. And like I said, I'm not asking. I'm pleading. If any bit of this is just touching a chord, and if there's a lot of people, maybe we'll get some other people to come on down. I'm telling you, the Lord wants to show you your identity. So we just invite you right now to come on down. Have a wonderful week. We do have refreshments downstairs. But I'm just saying, come on down.